Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary, Episode 40, Story Time. I have so many questions. Then, of course, there's the question on everyone's mind. Then I'll ask the obvious question. Start asking questions. You're the answer, son. Now for something completely different. I wasn't going to do a show this week, but I was inspired by reading the junior tie-in prequel novel Crossfire and the four General Mills comics. They're aimed at a younger audience, and they tell stories inspired by Batman v Superman. But they don't seem to dictate what that world will be. It seemed really fun to exercise your imagination and creativity. So I wrote an Elseworlds pitch for what might happen if Clark had saved Jonathan from the tornado. It's a little similar to the Elseworlds tale of JLA, The Nail where a nail blows out a tire which stops the Kents from finding and raising Superman, and how the DC Universe unfolds without him. As that Elseworlds comes from the proverb, for the want of a nail, this one comes from the proverb, the old man of the frontier losing his horse. So in this bonus show, we're going to have story time in four parts. Part one, Aesop's fable of the bat and the weasels, which appears in Crossfire. Part two, the Chinese proverb of the old man losing his horse. Part 3, My Man of Steel Elseworlds, as an outline of the ways things could have turned out differently. And Part 4, the conclusion to PBS's Superheroes, a never-ending battle as some ending encouragement. Story time isn't for everyone, so feel free to tune out. I'm not offended if you're not interested. But if you like wondering about what-ifs and twisted tales, maybe stick around. Part 1, The Bat and the Weasels. The villain in Crossfire is Dr. Aesop, so it should be unsurprising that his fable is included. Here is that short fable. The Bat and the Weasels A bat, falling upon the ground, was caught by a weasel, of whom he earnestly besought his life. The weasel refused, saying that he was by nature the enemy of all birds. The bat assured him that he was not a bird, but a mouse, and thus saved his life. Shortly afterward the bat again fell on the ground and was caught by another weasel, whom he likewise entreated not to eat him. The weasel said that he had a special hostility to mice. The bat assured him that he was not a mouse but a bat, and thus a second time escaped. Part 2. The Old Man on the Frontier Losing His Horse just as Aesop's fable implores listeners to think about how to put facts into a favorable context, this Chinese parable makes one consider rushing to judgment until all the facts are in. Once upon a time, there was a Chinese farmer who uh, lost a horse, ran away. And all the neighbors came round that evening and said, that's too bad. And he said, maybe. The next day the horse came back and brought seven wild horses with it. And all the neighbors came around and said, why, that's great, isn't it? And he said, maybe. The next day his son was attempting to tame one of these horses and was riding it and was thrown and broke his leg. And all the neighbors came around in the evening and said, well, that's too bad, isn't it? And the farmer said, maybe. And the next day, the conscription officers came around looking for people for the army. 
and they rejected his son because he had a broken leg. And all the neighbors came round that evening and said, isn't that wonderful? And he said, maybe. <laughs> the whole process of nature is an integrated process of immense complexity and it is really impossible to tell whether anything that happens in it is good or bad because you never know what will be the consequences of a misfortune or you never know what will be the consequences of good fortune. Part 3. Elseworlds. Man of Steel. Lost Horse. So, before we judge something good or bad, it helps to consider the impact in a larger context. As Jonathan said in Man of Steel, there's more here at stake than just our lives, Clark, or the lives of those around us. Yet, many can only see the loss of Jonathan, and they pay short shrift to the idea that in a moment of painful conviction, Clark trusted his father and accepted that the world wasn't ready and that he would have to wait. Elseworlds sometimes help us illustrate some of the stakes if things had gone differently. This is genuinely the product of pure procrastination. Instead of filing my taxes or prepping a brief, it's not intended as great literature or some precious product. Instead, remember back before we had constant digital distraction when you'd use your imagination to tell stories to your friends and your family, a fun and entertaining exercise for all its imperfections? Well, I humbly submit this in a similar spirit. Our story takes us back to Kansas, 1997, when frustrated with his untapped potential and lack of prospects, Clark lashes out at Jonathan, who acknowledges that they will have to do better going forwards. The scene pretty much plays out the same. You can go through our Tornado Topic episodes 30 and 31 for why. Jonathan is in the prime of his life, and his son is 17, still living under his roof and under his rules. Jonathan's priorities are the good of all, his son's safety and secret, and the lives of his family, all before he even considers his own life. So because him going for Hank doesn't jeopardize anyone's well-being but his own, and only nominally at that, he still opts to rescue Hank rather than risk the safety of Clark's secret, and the welfare of the world tied to that blissful ignorance of alien life. Moreover, never having faced the power of a force of nature before, and with absolutely no knowledge or belief that Clark would somehow be immune to something that powerful, like any father, Jonathan gladly put some risk on himself rather than Clark in order to save a family member like Hank. So Jonathan still braves the brewing winds to rescue Hank, which he heroically does, but he still hurts his foot, but he still shakes his head and holds up his hand to stop Clark from bolting out into the open in front of the world. And here our story diverges. Instead of trusting his father and defaulting to decades of keeping his secret, in this timeline, irrespective of his will, Clark's feet move of their own volition, driven by fear and the terror of loss and heartache. Without thinking or conscious choice, he thunders forward like Zod would one day do across the expanse of Ground Zero in the original timeline. Clark can't fly yet. He doesn't have super speed in the way that we like to imagine it yet. But what he does have is strength. 
Strength that can drive him with incredible speed and force, but in a way that is patently observable and which tears up the ground beneath his every foot strike. The onlookers are astonished and they gasp as Clark figuratively flies across the length of several football fields in some 14 seconds. All the laws of physics are still in full effect, so Clark can only stop by slamming into the station wagon and sending it flying like a billiard ball. The tornado is already on top of them, deadly debris flying about, whole vehicles and trees are lifted into the air around them. Clark has but a split second to do something before they're both carried up into the tempest. No matter how strong Clark was, in fact, he had never been tested to this limit. Even if he could survive in the chaos of a tornado, he couldn't protect his dad from some errant piece of high-speed debris or a fatal crash landing. So Clark grabs Jonathan and he brings him tightly to his chest and he throws them both to the ground, intending to cover Jonathan from flying debris with his own body. And as the winds pick up, he feels himself being lifted up and with unspoken prayers, he digs and claws his fingers into the asphalt to keep from flying away. The tornado robs them of their sight, sound, and senses. And even as Clark started to think that he might survive this, he found himself involuntarily choking, unable to breathe. The high-speed winds created a low-pressure environment that ripped the air from his lungs, and that pressure differential is not overcome by his diaphragm, no matter how strong. An eyedropper made of stronger-than-steel Kevlar doesn't create any more suction than one made of ordinary rubber. Clark's body would be sustained, but it didn't stop the horrible sensation and the psychological panic of suffocating. Yet despite the deafening roar of the wind and his own inability to breathe, Clark's true terror came from hearing and feeling his father's life slip away underneath him. Clenching too hard, the asphalt broke in his right hand and he had to re-establish his grip. And to him, it all seemed like this horrible eternity where time refused to pass. His torment was punctuated by a piece of debris striking his spine and taking the back of his shirt with it. A normal person would have been killed instantly. Of course, a normal person would have already been taken up by this whirlwind or been unable to breathe like his dad. From Martha's perspective, she didn't hear the gasps of astonishment and exclamation at Clark launching himself away at superhuman speeds, tearing up the pavement with every footfall. Without thinking, she started off after her son and husband before a stranger mercifully held her back. Martha screamed involuntarily as Clark and Jonathan were completely obscured. She hoped that Clark would save them both. She feared that she had just lost them both. But when the black winds subsided, she could just make out Clark hunched over, rising, and then with an inhumanly loud roar, Mom! Help! The anguish and panic in Clark's voice awakened Martha's every reserve of power within herself, and she was by his side in moments. Clark's entire body trembled with shock. The asphalt in his vibrating fists were being crushed into dust. Beneath him, Jonathan was cold and lifeless. No pulse, no breath, no heartbeat. Clark knew his dad needed CPR, but his emotions still overwhelmed his body. He had crushed steel under the flush of emotion when bullied and humiliated, but that was nothing compared to the emotions flooding him now. The fear for his dad, the exposure of his powers, the panic of suffocation, and after all of that, his dad was still dying. Martha understood immediately 
immediately. She moved Clark aside, took a deep breath to still her own ragged breathing from sprinting over, then gave Jonathan two rescue breaths and, nervously, began chest compressions, counting to 30, before giving two more rescue breaths. Ever since Clark had struggled to breathe as an infant, Martha had always maintained her CPR training. The goal was to keep oxygenated blood flowing to prevent brain death. In the movies, CPR had taken on magical-like properties, as if awakening a sleeping princess. In the movies, CPR had an 85% success rate, reviving the person immediately, and in some cases, literally acting as a romantic kiss. But there was nothing romantic about the reality of CPR, with success rates that were often in the single digits. Ribs were bruised and broken, and even in success, coma was a very likely possibility. Martha knew all this and put it out of her mind as she clung to saving her husband. Clark, meanwhile, battled his shock. Focus. He had to focus. The din of the whole world disappeared until the only thing he could hear was his dad's heart being pumped. He focused his vision so that he could see what his mom was doing. Dad's ribs were already cracked and she was pushing a little too quickly and irregularly. She was trying to compensate for fatigue. Clark steadied his hand and he pinched up a pebble to prove to himself that he had restored fine motor control. He gently clasped his mother's wrist to stop her and took over. Years of being Clark's mother, Martha could tell when Clark was using his special vision and she knew that he was being guided by it. Clark pushed carefully with the deliberate strength of one palm and x-ray guided precision as Martha provided the rescue breaths. Fifteen compressions in, Jonathan's heart leapt to life and began to beat on its own, and his lungs quickly followed. Martha and Clark let out sobs of relief as the comatose Jonathan breathed shallowly. As much as half of the casualties and injuries related to tornadoes occur after the tornado itself, downed power lines, broken gas mains, unsafe structures, broken glass, and leaked gasoline can all cause harm or injury afterwards. The cars are trashed. The highway is backed up, and even if you could start your car, you risk setting off a gasoline fire, blowing a tire at speed on glass or debris, running into live wires, or running over injured people who couldn't move. The radio insists that trained professionals are on their way to the survivors in the fastest and most responsible way, and that the survivors should stay put. And as much as Clark wants to get Jonathan medical attention as soon as possible, he knows there's no way to take him there alone safely and he wouldn't know where to take him regardless. At 17 years old, he had never seen the inside of a hospital, much less know where to find one in the middle of nowhere. Widespread consumer GPS is still several years away. Clark doesn't know how to fly. He doesn't have flash-like super speed, and so he can't simply whisk Jonathan away without consequences, and so they wait in the road for help to come. In time, people start to shuffle about trying to recover items from their vehicles, but they steer clear of Clark's family. A pockmarked path of cratered concrete and asphalt trails from the overpass to the Kents, just like the ones that the Kryptonians would one day leave in Main Street Smallville or at Ground Zero in the other timeline. Is he... is he all right? It was the mother who Jonathan had helped, her little girl still in her arms. She seemed conflicted and nervous. Martha silently nodded. He helped us. I... we... we all saw what your son did. Some of them are talking about it. Uh, uh, him, she corrected herself. I just thought you should know. They exchanged nods and went back to waiting. 
and worrying. In 1997, cellular phone technology was adopted, although coverage in Kansas was terrible. The X-Files was in its fourth season, and Men in Black was the third highest grossing film of the year. Aliens and government conspiracy were in the American zeitgeist. Here, the witnesses were not children who grew up with Clark Kent and who owed them their lives after being rescued from death. These were a mix of adults, total strangers, already full of fear and emotion from a force of nature, seeing something perhaps even more extraordinary, a sample size of humanity which unfortunately did contain bigots and the fearful. Seeing Clark's supernatural power, some of the collected witnesses immediately began to strategize on getting the information out there as soon as possible. Between them, they had a cell phone and some CB radios to start getting the word out that something inhuman was among them. In 2016, Bruce would say, 20 years in Gotham, how many good guys are left? So by 1997, Batman had completed his year one. It was a big year, full of lessons from sloppy first-time mistakes, his beginnings as a masked vigilante. That first year created an impact on Gotham that went around the world. Unseating major mobsters shook loose tendrils tied to the highest levels of government. Upsetting weapons, drugs, and vice in Gotham had international impact, destabling long-entrenched cartels with their own ties to government, some as informants, some as fair-weather allies or assets against other international powers and threats. A lone vigilante's disruption of criminal trade in one major port city was creating ripples in Washington. Whispers, deals, and dinner-meeting handshakes led to an ambitious Amanda Waller being commissioned to command Argus. If this Batman was going to be a force acting outside the law and off the books, then they would be the anonymous response. Waller was Mulder and Scully with the force of an unaccountable ranger group behind her and the deniability and the invisibility of the men in black without a fraction of the humanity or the humor. When Argus wanted to be forgotten, the answer was not a flashing neuralizer but a bullet to the brain. So far, Argus focused mostly on gathering intelligence, a task that was growing more difficult as the Batman gained experience and grew more elusive. Their existence and funding was jeopardized by the lack of meaningful results. Nonetheless, Argus had its ear to the ground, listening, waiting for any hint of the extraordinary or unusual. In 1997, Argus Intelligence begins receiving reports out of Kansas, and Waller scrambles her men. Mom, wake up. We're here. Hours after the tornado, Clark and Martha were in the driveway in front of their home. The ambulances only had room for the injured. Clark and Martha couldn't go with Jonathan, and as he was non-critical, the responders told them not to clog the hospital and just head home. Emergency services ferried survivors to a bus station where they could find transport. From there, Martha called a sister from church to pick them up. Are you sure you don't need anything? We're fine. We'll get some rest, wait by the phone, and we have the truck to drive out to the hospital when things calm down. Okay, we're praying for Jonathan and you. As her friend drove off, Martha started to shuffle up the driveway, and Clark stopped her. Something's not right. His nerves were frayed and his senses on edge, so the din of the world which he normally keeps out crept in, and he could make out the sounds of people all around him. A sweep of his x-ray vision confirmed the same. What is it? We're surrounded. Through his heightened hearing, he could hear the slight squawk of a radio transmission and a woman's voice ordering, Trank them. Clark felt something ping off the back of his neck, 
Martha yelled from getting hit and started to sway. Clark caught her. Clark, run, please. She managed before her eyes rolled up into her head. Second and third shots trying to tranquilize him pinged off his skin. This Clark was already raw and mentally exhausted from the day's events. He had already sacrificed so much to save his father, and he wasn't about to abandon his mother despite her pleas. In this timeline and in these circumstances, he lacked the reserves of emotional will to do what his parents asked for the sake of the world, and he could only think of his own pain should he lose them. Clark's eyes blazed red and took out the rifle of one sniper, and then he leapt towards him. Tango hot, weapons free, a panicked fireteam leader shouts as Clark begins to leap from soldier to soldier, taking them out. They're all lit up in his infrared vision, easy to spot and to knock out. The soldiers fire wildly as Clark moves impossibly. Belay that, I did not give that order. Cease fire, cease fire, screams Waller. A live specimen like this was worth an entire squad, nay ten. Waller didn't want to risk it catching a bullet and dying on them. Yet Clark was getting hit and for the first time in his life realizing that he was bulletproof. His 17-year-old brain began formulating a haphazard plan. He would KO all the soldiers, get his mom to the truck, and drive. But his Hollywood escape dreams were halted by somebody clearly calling his name. Clark Kent, stand down or your mother dies. Clark stopped. He saw Waller crouched over Martha's body with a gun to her head, and his eyes began to blaze red involuntarily. Look away and shut that down unless you want her to die. Clark complied, but raged inside. You think you can threaten my mother? You think you're faster than a speeding bullet? Maybe. But my men are at Memorial, third floor, east wing, room 308. If we don't report in, they take Jonathan Kent out. Clark felt like he was falling, and he did his best to calm down. His eyes stopped blazing. He raised his hands in the universal sign of surrender. What do you want, boy? We're here to enlist you. We're the good guys, and Uncle Sam wants you. Clark thought for a moment, then started to turn towards her. Then you won't. Two gunshots cut him off. The fireteam leader, who had lost his nerve and opened fire, caught two square in the chest and dropped. I just shot my own man twice for disobedience. You don't think I'll shoot a traitor harboring a threat to national security? No, I'll cooperate. Good. The fireteam leader groaned. He'll be fine. Vest, I told you, we're the good guys. The Kent farmstead is turned inside out, resulting in the recovery of Clark's starship and command key. The ship reveals Clark's extraterrestrial origins, and immediately the stakes are raised. Jonathan Kent becomes a potentially invaluable source of information and leverage, and so he is given the best care possible and makes a full recovery. Meanwhile, Clark begins his new life under Amanda Waller's thumb. First there were the interrogations. Where do you come from? Are there more of you here? What do you want? Why are you here? What are your intentions? The endless interrogations wore down their wills while gleaning valuable insight into Clark's life. Once satisfied that collectively Clark and the Kents basically knew nothing, next came the tests. Jonathan had always sought to keep Clark safe, so he never knew his limits. But Waller needed to know the parameters of her asset. The testing was careful and 
meticulous. They had to preserve their asset, but also how to keep it contained, if push came to shove. For now, everything was under the guise of benevolent patriotism and the color of law. They would show Jonathan and Martha leniency for harboring Clark if he continued to cooperate. If he complied with the questioning and their testing, they could all go their way in the end. And in the meantime, these tests would help them root out any other people like himself on Earth. And wouldn't that be exciting to learn that he wasn't alone, to meet someone with more answers? Additionally, these tests and technology would go to work helping American interests, advancing science and medicine, bringing troops home and healing the sick. Clark was doing so much for his nation, for humanity, by being here, rather than wasting away on a farm. Waller deployed the best of the best in psychological manipulation to guide this teenaged mind into acceptance. And with acceptance came enlistment. Clark could help beyond just being a subject of study. If he were loyal and trained, imagine what kind of asset he could be. Clark was guided towards seeing how he was making a difference and how much more of a difference he could make if he could just be a good soldier. Despite doing it all because Waller kept the Kents under lock and key with threat of prosecution, Clark found the training was granting him confidence, power, and a sense of purpose. He was becoming a good soldier and initially deployed only to rescue covert operatives or to troubleshoot using his powers of surveillance. Those opportunities allowed Clark to see the world. And saving people somehow felt right. Waller would commend him for rescuing operatives and supplying critical intelligence of world-shaking importance. Waller was, in a twisted sense, becoming a maternal figure as much as a mentor and master. Anytime Clark would have doubts, the duration of the Kent's incarceration and not-so-subtle threats to their lives would remind him to stay in line. And while Clark underwent his transformation, Waller was busy at work transforming Argus. The capture and taming of an alien superbeing, recovery of a starship, and data drive made Waller a rock star. Her importance, funding, and power skyrocketed, which allowed her to pursue the study, capture, and exploitation of metahumans 15 years earlier than in the other timeline. The covert ops community was already whispering, the Superman exists, and he's American. Waller recognizes that the metahuman arms race is the new frontier, and that if she didn't consolidate her power base, competition would quickly arise from without and from within, threatening to challenge her agent Superman, or even steal Clark from her. She needed more metahumans. So a version of the Suicide Squad is assembled faster, assisted by reverse-engineered Kryptonian technology, and with Clark waiting in the wings as an unstoppable closer. Clark feels just Justified in taking down monsters like Killer Croc when storming his lair filled with half-eaten body parts. But seeing the evil that monsters do on a regular basis is making Clark colder and more calloused to cope. He's less sure of himself when ordered to take out metahumans who seem innocent. Yet every time he doubts, he's subjected to a new round of experimentation, more psychological manipulation, and reminded that Waller holds Jonathan and Martha's lives in her hands. And besides, the quote-unquote good metahumans routinely found themselves on the squad, and Clark is slightly reassured that it's all for a purpose. Even if Waller's means were wicked, it was for noble ends, and 
and he couldn't help but look up to the soldiers who volunteered for the squad. But other times, he's completely lost as to what that purpose is. On a mission to capture Dr. Langstrom, aka the Man Bat, Clark discovers that he can fly, saving Rick Flagg in the process. For a moment, Clark considers using the power to escape. But Flagg promises to keep Clark's power of flight secret in gratitude for saving him. Clark returns to Waller only to be fitted with tracking devices and subjected to tests to determine the full nature of his flight power. Clark never sees Flagg again. Did Flagg betray Clark out of patriotism? Did Flagg exchange the secret to get off the squad? Did Waller force it out of him or figure it out? Clark would never know. His heart continued to harden with the unanswered questions. As the missions got more harrowing and the targets more powerful, Waller recruited more and more expendable metahumans into the squad. Inspired by Clark's array of sensors providing a technological leash, Waller takes technology from Palmer and commissions the implantation of miniature bombs into the base of the squad's skulls to ensure compliance and deniability. Clark sees enough squad mates fall in the field or at the push of a button to begin to want to see only the worst of the worst end up on the squad, and likely eventually meet their end. He had seen too much. He didn't want to relive losing Zatanna or Vic Sage. Hell, even the loss of Digger, one of his longest-running squad mates, had hurt. In the other timeline, Clark spent his early adulthood among normal, humble, everyday people, informing his character and his attitude. Here, Clark was being raised by extreme elements, on the fringes of society, from the warped Waller to seasoned soldiers, criminals, and dangerous metahumans, all of them passing through the squad and leaving their mark on him. Clark didn't want the pain of bonding anymore, to the point that he was relieved to see Killer Croc put on the squad, relief that was short-lived. Soon after, Waller installed bombs into Jonathan and Martha's heads. For the next phase of her ascent to power, Waller needed Clark's absolute obedience, and pretending that it was about the length of their incarceration wasn't going to hold up anymore. The wall was getting results, no question, yet those with their own agendas were beginning to question whether the credit belonged to the alien Superman. Maxwell Lord suggested that Checkmate may be better suited to run Argus. Director Bones suggested that the DEO should have jurisdiction over metahuman assets. Others would say Argus might be more effective under different management. Waller was prepared for this, and and she exploits Clark's newfound flight power to disappear her political rivals and would-be usurpers. While Clark isn't ready to kill for Waller, he does assist her in putting them in a hole and throwing away the hole. Even if disgusted by Waller, Clark still feels a sick kind of loyalty to her. In unraveling and in undoing her rivals, he's privy to how corrupt they would have been a cancer within the nation, willing to eat its own for the sake of personal ambition. And that left Clark in conflicted admiration of Waller's absolute commitment to the greater good, one involving untold evil to prevent almost certainly greater evils and tragedies. Yet he would have many occasions to doubt. A part of him wanted to completely abandon the Kents so that Waller would have nothing on him. Clark was still more powerful than her entire squad put together, and he could be free. But free to do what? He was literally saving lives and keeping the metahuman menace in check. He was bringing terrorists to justice and an invaluable American asset under Waller's direction. Allowing her to wield his incredible power and senses like a scalpel had indisputably averted great calamities and changed 
the course of human history. The alternative? Well, Clark had seen the alternative in the squad. Many humans who were scorned by society turned out to be the worst of the worst. They were always on the run, always feared and rejected and made into monsters. Inside this hidden world of covert operations, ironically, Clark could be himself and use his powers. Waller had created a safe bubble for the formation of his identity. If he ever dared burst it, what would his life be? Hiding in sewers like Killer Croc? Mobs calling for his blood? Pursued by the government and hunted by the Batman? Molded from his teens to adulthood, over time, Clark acclimates to taking orders and his situation of slavery. The years passed by. It was inevitable that the bat and the wall would clash. Both hunted similar prey, and so the two began a secret war. It was brief and hard fought, with casualties on either side. But Waller calls in her ace, and Clark ends Batman's career over his knee. Waller imprisons Bruce and takes over his holdings with Clayface. Batman's resources and research leads to additional metahumans, and Waller secures a stranglehold monopoly over metahumans on Earth. Waller brokers alliances with secret societies and shadowy leagues and crushes corners of magic. With her pawns in place, she holds the Amazons and the Atlanteans in check as factors. A woman bringing peace to the world behind the scenes placates the Amazons. Environmental assurances assuage the Atlanteans. More years pass. Sixteen years later, after Clark's capture, the scout ship in the Arctic begins to give off a signal and it's discovered by the U.S. military. Waller is immediately notified, but Clark is not told about it. When the military breach the ship, the scout ship's security drone is triggered, and thus the distress beacon is set off, which alerts General Zod to Earth's presence. The military tried to take the ship, but it's a slog of battles trying to take out bulletproof sentry robots scattered throughout the ship's massive interior, while trying to limit damage to the ship itself. With the ship on Canadian soil, civilians and press present, Waller can't send in metahuman assistance. The military have to make do with mundane means. Waller does send the command key along in hopes of helping. It doesn't. Why not? Well, consider, when Clark was still a child, Jonathan had, of course, tried inserting the command key into the starship for any insight into his adopted son. And of course, nothing happened, because the Jor-El AI didn't want it to yet. He wanted Clark to be raised human. Likewise, the military's insertion of the command key into the scout ship did not do anything. It was suggested that Clark should be the one to insert the key, but Waller insisted that Clark be kept in the dark. In the meantime, 250,000 miles away, General Zod sits on the dark side of the moon, observing and researching the planet Earth, the only suitable candidate for terraforming encountered in 33 years of searching. At a minimum, Zod wanted the scout ship and its genesis chamber, but Zod wanted the planet to use as a staging ground for colonization. After three decades on a ship, it would serve them well to continue to search for the codex from a habitable planet. In this timeline, Lois never spots Clark entering the ship, and she never publishes her story about an alien rescuer. Instead, Lois spends a few largely uneventful days at the camp as they breach the ship and take casualties. Lois is completely frozen out 
she knows something is going on, but since the scout ship doesn't take off in this timeline and there's no Clark to grant her access to the ship, her story never develops serious traction. While the tornado incident was reported, Waller quickly suppressed all records of that story shortly after. Zod doesn't believe the Codex is on Earth. He has no reason to offer humanity an ultimatum. So after evaluating Earth's fighting capability to be harmless, he descends to terraform the Earth without warning. With no advanced warning, the devastation from the gravity weapon gets much further in this timeline before Waller can even respond. Metropolis is well and truly a crater by the time she sends her heavy hitters against the invader's command ship. Yet in terms of durability, none of them are on the scale of a Superman, and they get wrecked by the gravity weapon's effects. Remember that without Jor-El, they don't have a plan or an explanation for what's happening. All they know is that two hostile Style ships have descended to destroy an American city while transforming our world. Even with Clark's vessel in their custody, without Jor-El's insight, it can't be used as a weapon. Not to say that Waller didn't have weapons, but nothing to use against a starship. Waller is reluctant to reveal Clark to the world, since much of his power comes from operating in secret. But there's no choice. Gotham has been swallowed up by now. Waller orders Clark to take out the alien command ship. And he does, with relish, flying faster and harder than ever before. This will be the single most important mission of his life. Clark rips through the ship repeatedly, tearing it apart and downing the Black Zero. However, across the planet, the world engine continues to hum away and terraform the planet. The world engine predates phantom drive technology by 20,000 years, and it operates as it was originally intended to do, independently of the Black Zero. The Earth is still getting terraformed, albeit more slowly. Meanwhile, from the wreckage of the Black Zero comes Zod and his entire crew, powered under a yellow sun. Clark is overwhelmingly stronger than any one individual Kryptonian who are new in their powers, and Clark has been using his powers brutally for years now, versed in combat. But the sheer number of Kryptonians are enough to push Clark. As the battle rages, it dawns on Zod that this warrior must be Kal-El, that the Codex is on this planet, that this must be the last son of Krypton, the son of his mentor. He had found him. Clark is unleashed like never before. Foaming at the mouth, he is held down by half a dozen Kryptonians when Zod's roar cuts through his battle haze. You are not alone. Son of Jor-El, I knew your father, Cal. Clark stops struggling, floored by the implications. We are your people. I am General Zod. They sit in silence before Clark responds. And Cal? That's my name. Cal-El. It is. You come from the destroyed world of Krypton. Your father sent you here that Krypton could live again on Earth. It is within your power, your destiny, your purpose to save what remains of your race. Clark took it all in. After a lifetime of questions, his treatment at humanity's hands, 16 years removed from the kindness of the Kents and his hands stained and his heart calloused by the work that he had done for Waller, he arises, Kal-El. Tell me what to do. 
Zod relates the value of the Codex and its ability to bring back the Kryptonians. Cal offers to reveal the locations of his starship to lead to the Codex and any of Waller's strongholds if Zod will free his parents. Zod agrees to the terms and the Kryptonians are assigned their tasks. Namek is to take a contingent to guard the world engine. Feora and her men are to retrieve the scout ship. Zod and Kal-El would strike at the heart of their enemy, attacking Waller and rescuing the Kents, and Jaxer and the others would simultaneously rout Waller's other installations. Everything essentially goes as planned. Kal-El goes to rescue the Kents while Zod confronts Waller. Waller's silver tongue could be a threat to anyone else, but Zod has little patience for lower life forms and never entertains compromise. Before Waller can even summon the words to beguile him, Zod has already killed her. Kal-El disables and removes the bombs from his parents, but the reunion is awkwardly one-sided. During the rescue of the Kents, the facility is compromised and a crippled Bruce Wayne makes his escape. While separated from Zod, the Kents try to appeal to Clark to stop the Kryptonian general, but they've been so far removed from him that they're more like sentimental pets than a strong influence. A vestigial part of Clark wants them to be safe, but he can't relate to them anymore. Clark took on a fatalistic view upon learning his origins, so he had always been meant to conquer and cleanse the earth. Everything until now had been an unfortunate detour to his ultimate destiny. There was a certain relief in knowing that everything would start over, but the Kents try to convince Clark that he can still choose. And they nearly reach him, but he recoils at the last second. Being able to feel meant a flood of regret and shame too painful to deal with. He steals himself against his feelings and puts on his Kryptonian heritage as bravado. I don't even know why I'm listening to you. You're just some guy that found me in a field. If only they hadn't. He wouldn't have this conscience to weigh on him. He could have the cold-blooded conviction of Zod, something that he had been groomed to admire by Waller. Kal-El walked away. While Waller had grown powerful, there were always isolated pockets of power who managed to evade her grip. Bruce Wayne needed those stragglers to come together to stop the world engine. Bruce had been robbed of the opportunity to work out his thirst for justice as the Batman for over 15 years. Caged and crippled, all he had left was his mind, brewing in years of pent-up bitterness. Have pity for Clayface considering what Bruce did to him with a decade of planning to reclaim his cave. In his short five-year career as Batman, he had never faced such an overwhelming supernatural power as the Superman. The cynical Bruce assumed that Waller would have contingencies against Clark to control him, and he was right. Waller had researched and developed weapons to use against Clark if he were to be turned or taken away. Yet as long as he was in her pocket, she kept those weapons a secret to protect Clark and maximize his utility. Bruce sought out and found this information during his escape. From his cave, Bruce reaches out to the unit specially tasked to take out Clark if necessary, the unit guarding and trained in Waller's secret cache of anti-Kryptonian weaponry. Bruce calls Rick Flag. Jr. They assemble Earth's last defenders together to take out the world engine and stop the terraforming. Bruce dons the cowl, trying to draw strength from it. He can't walk or stand, but it doesn't matter when joining the fight from the cockpit of an airplane. In a final desperate attempt, 
what remains of Earth's mightiest, clash against Namek and his men, setting ablaze the skies over an alien doomsday machine in the Indian Ocean. Against all odds and by the narrowest of margins, they destroy the world engine and stop the terraforming. Namek and several Kryptonians are killed, but Bruce and Flag's forces are annihilated when Zod's reinforcements arrive. Even with anti-Kryptonian weaponry, once the element of surprise was lost, several military-trained Kryptonians were too much. Nonetheless, with their sacrifice, the terraforming is stopped and humanity will live another day. Zod is enraged by the destruction of the world engine and the loss of Namek, and retaliates immediately against a major city to quell any spirit of human resistance left. With control re-established, he sets about his singular mission of recreating Krypton. They will scour Kal-El's vessel for clues to the Codex, but in the meantime, the Phantom Drive is extracted from Kal's ship and retrofitted to the scout ship. Zod entrusts Feora, with the mission of using the scout ship to recover another world engine. They reclaim what they can from the wreckage of the Black Zero, but without fully functioning Kryptonian technology, there is more interaction and reliance upon the indigenous people and their infrastructure. This isn't the clean break that Kal-El wanted, and Zod can see doubt creeping in. With Namek and Feora gone, Zod pays special attention to Kal-El. He could forgive Kal any lapses in decorum as a stranger to their ways. The discovery of Kal-El, who would lead them to the Codex, was a cause for celebration, not conflict. Besides, Zod couldn't risk conflict with Kal-El. With his powers and without Kryptonian technology, there was no way to jail him or to extract information about the Codex against his will. Conflict with Kal-El would only end in Kal's death and the loss of their single greatest clue to the Codex. So instead, Zod told Kal-El tales of Krypton and of his father Jor-El, while questioning him about his life on Earth. Mostly to gain clues as to the location of the Codex, but to affirm his own own beliefs and creeds. While he couldn't deny Kal-El's strength and ferocity in battle, Kal's lack of conviction betrayed his inferior breeding. Kal was an abomination born without the guidance of the Codex. Only with the Codex could they breed loyal and steadfast Kryptonians. Zod perhaps overestimated their loyalty. While he was distracted by Kal-El and bereft of his most loyal sub-commanders, Jaxer had plans of his own. Jaxer had joined Zod in an attempt at a rebellion on Krypton, less because of a shared ideological purity, but more the promise of power and prominence under Zod's new regime. For siding with Zod, he was banished to the Phantom Zone, and then forced to wander the stars awaiting starvation or death for three decades, with nary a thing to stimulate his pursuit of science. Jaxer's participation in unsanctioned science was the product of his deeply curious mind, a mind that rotted away within the confines of the Black Zero because of Zod's single-minded quest. Here, on this planet, Jaxer could not only resume his experiments, but he had tasted incredible power, power which would let him do the science that he wanted without interference from anyone. Not Krypton's stodgy and conservative council, not these pitiful earthlings, and not even Zod. Having enjoyed godlike power in crushing Waller's facilities and treated like a god by these groveling earthlings, Jaxer wasn't ready to return to a life of servitude under General Zod and his dogmas. While Zod had every intention of turning this world into another Krypton and ruling with military might, Jaxer began to plot his own future. At least he thought he was. 
With limited operating Kryptonian technology, Jaxer had to rely upon the materials, equipment, and the like supplied by these indigenous beings, and Jaxer quickly grew impatient and frustrated with the human liaisons assigned to try and meet his desires. He had the terrible habit of killing them when they were too slow or didn't understand him, and they were always too slow and always confused. Until... An uncommonly intelligent human just seemed barely able to keep up. By now, Jaxer had gone through enough humans to note how rare this was, and so he extended a greater measure of patience to this Lex Luthor to keep things running smoothly. He allowed Luthor to speak more than he would tolerate any other human, and now and then he would see a flash of insight nearly on par with his own, quickly followed by confirmation that Luthor was still a dull human and barely able to grasp the higher ways of Kryptonians. Having Luthor work for him, Jaxer's contempt for Zod slowly grew, while gaining a begrudging appreciation for Earth as it was, filled with potential if ruled by a superior race of Kryptonians with godlike powers. Meanwhile, freed from the influence of Waller and seeing the Kryptonians forced to coexist with humanity for the time being, Kal-El started to imagine a future where he could return to the Kents as their prodigal son, the tiniest glimmer of hope. Zod saw that inclination and tried to emphasize his Kryptonian heritage. He bestows upon Cal a suit bearing the crest of the House of El, and Jaxer, under the subtle manipulations of Lex Luthor, sees a way to drive a wedge between the two without risking a revolt by those still loyal to Zod. If Jaxer were to move against Zod, the remaining Kryptonians would be embroiled in civil war. However, if the Abomination were to kill Zod, the Outsider would be executed and Jaxer could smoothly transition into Zod's place. The plan was so seductive, Jaxer completely believed that it was his own. He ordered Luthor to carry it out. The Kents looked up when the door to their quarters opened. It was Lex, one of the few humans with whom they had regular contact. Lex was always infinitely interested in their lives before their 16 years of incarceration. He had made every effort to make their new imprisonment as comfortable as possible. He had sympathized with them as a fellow pet of a Kryptonian, and they immediately protested. He was and would always be their son, and Lex withdrew his observation with deep apologies for any offense. He was quickly forgiven, and he continued to visit them from time to time, and despite himself, Lex actually grew to have a sincere affection for them. So it was with genuine regret that Lex entered with a weapon raised. Your deaths will matter, he said choking on the words. He fired, and the couple were incinerated as if by a Kryptonian's heat vision, one of the very first weapons developed by Waller upon understanding how Clark kept himself groomed. Naturally, if such energy could break down his cells, it could be adapted into a weapon if replicated. Here, it allowed Jaxer to frame Zod for the deaths of the Kents. Jaxer went to Kal-El, Graven, and led him back to the Kents as he related how he had been pushing for coexistence with humanity while Zod remained steadfast in their extermination. He said that their argument got heated and that the Kents were caught in the middle, becoming examples of Zod's total contempt for humanity. Jaxer revealed the ashes and didn't have time to give his condolences. Kal-El snapped. 
In the other timeline, many would decry the scope of the battle between Zod and Cal, which honestly involved only a handful of buildings. In that battle, Zod was the dominant fighter, gloating and toying with an inexperienced first-time fighter raised on a farm, who was doing his best to end the fight as quickly as possible to stem the tide of collateral damage. Here, Cal had lost all vestiges of his humanity, save for the pain that he was left with. He didn't care about falling buildings, limiting destruction, or saving lives. His obsession was solely in ending Zod's. From Zod's perspective, he respected Cal's fighting ability and the threat that he represented. There was no playing around, no taunts, no hesitation. Both were at their most brutal. A life and death fight. The, their combat spanned continents, shattered mountains, toppled buildings, crashed into freeways, flattened forests, and more. They literally shook the earth. So intense was their battle, no words were exchanged. When it was nearly over, the edge went to the younger fighter in his prime, having years of experience with these powers, versus a warrior veteran just coming into them. Cal returned them to the scene of the crime and finished Zod, where his parents had died. Cal was weakened and wounded, the lid of one eye drooping, the other eye nearly swollen shut, just able to make out Jaxer's approach. Jaxer couldn't help himself. He began to monologue, but before he could needlessly explain every facet of his plan to Cal, Lex stabbed Jaxer in the back with a glowing green blade. Jaxer writhed and Lex screamed, do it, Kent. Do it now. Kalel is momentarily taken aback by Lex's literal backstabbing. But before he can capitalize on Jaxer's agony as Lex had intended, something else caught Cal's attention. The Kents had taught Clark to focus, but being at physical and emotional extremes could decay that focus and cause him to take in more spectrums of sensation than he intended. An emotional extreme, like seeing the smoldering ashes of his parents, opened his full range of senses and created a full-spectrum flashbulb memory of that traumatic moment. Smells, sounds, and sights, he had every iota of data etched into his mind from that instant, including the unique heat-vision-like signature coming from their corpses, practically sparkling in his alien field of view. The experience of this extra-visual signal was indescribable in human terms, and incomparable, except to an identical signature coming from residue in Lex Luthor's long red hair. Cal's mangled face somehow related to Lex that he was caught, and Lex's mind instantly put together how, if only he had been bald. Kent, I did it for you. I did it for humanity. Cal recoiled in horror. If Lex Luthor represented humanity, they deserved what they got. Humanity had its chance, Cal muttered before pouring on the heat vision and immolating Lex Luthor. Other Kryptonians arrived to put an end to Cal's rampage and assist Jaxer, who eventually recovers. Under his rule, the Kryptonians become the dominant race on the planet, then spread throughout the galaxy like a plague. As guardians and gods tremble at their advance across the stars, we go back to a humble farmer on a Kansas road, asking his beloved son to trust him. Jonathan was right. Part 4. Superheroes, a never-ending battle. Finally, I know some have worry and trepidation about the fate of these films, but rather than drill down into specifics, I want to end with some encouragement from The Long View with the incredible PBS documentary Superheroes, a never-ending battle. The documentary title is a reflection of the constant ups and downs of superheroes throughout history and their never-ending endurance despite it all. The documentary originally aired in the lead-up to Man of Steel, 
steal and is an absolute must-watch. But I leave you with the conclusion which embodies the optimism and endurance of these heroes. In the Great Depression, the creators of Superman could never have imagined the impact that their character would have on the world. Not only are superheroes everywhere, but their heroic qualities have become more meaningful than ever. Everyone knows these characters, from Timbuktu to Taiwan. And I think what they know about them at heart is that the power of superheroes is doing the right thing for the right reason and being willing to put yourself on the line to help other people. As I watched the Arab Spring unfolding, I kept seeing in the crowd a guy or two wearing Superman t-shirts. Where there is struggle, where there's turmoil, there's somebody wearing a Superman t-shirt. I think that symbol is one of hope. Whether it's somebody you know fighting for rights in another country or someone who's persecuted, when they put that t-shirt on, that symbol on, they feel invulnerable. They feel they can fly. Superheroes have been a part of our culture for 75 years. But they seem to have always been around, looking out for us on high. They are the better angels of our nature. We want to be better. We want to be stronger. We want to be more heroic. Damn it, we want to know that what we do counts. Superheroes have always flourished in times of the greatest American adversity. In the Depression era, we were afraid of whether or not we would be able to put food on the table. We were afraid of being involved in a great world war that would take our freedom away. In the Atomic Age, we were afraid of radiation. Today, we're afraid of terrorist attacks. And in all of those eras of history, that's when superheroes have enjoyed their greatest resurgence. We love superheroes because they don't give up on us. We made something that can't be defeated, which I think is really, you know, as you said, it's a profound idea. They're our mythology, they're our heroes. We need ideals to look up to. And, you know, they're not going to let us down. Superman's not going to let us down. Superman's always going to be there. Answer, son.